This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Suzanne Phelan received her PhD in clinical psychology from Hanneman University, and she went on to uh, do some postdoctoral work and become an associate professor of um, psych. Uh, psychiatry and human behavior at Brown, where she started working on um, this, the fabulous National Weight Control Registry. She's now with us in California. We really tried to get her to come here to UCSF, um, but we'll take her here in California. Um, and she's cr- currently at California Polytechnic in the Department of Kinesiology, where she got involved with Barbara Abrams. Um, who's still at Berkeley, on uh, focusing on pregnancy. So there's a lot of really great collaboration and excitement, and she's going to be talking to us today about um, pregnancy, a teachable moment for weight control and obesity prevention. Okay, great. Well, thank you all, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Very excited to be here today, and I want to thank the organizers for inviting me. So I'm going to, we've heard some about the negative effects of excessive gestational weight gain in pregnancy. We've heard a lot also about the adverse effects of pre-pregnancy obesity. And so now, as was nicely introduced, let's talk about can we reverse and prevent some of these adverse outcomes. So I'm going to first talk about do we know how to help women gain the recommended amounts of weight during pregnancy. Then I'm going to go on to talk about can we translate that knowledge into action to really start to improve public health. And then also what should, should the future look like. And my talk is focusing on pregnancy interventions. I'd love to present a similar talk on pre-pregnancy interventions, but there are no data there. So (laughs) we've got to talk about where the data are, and that is during pregnancy at the moment. So I'm going to start by talking a little bit about theory, and a theory that, that posits that unlike any other time in a woman's lifespan, pregnancy may be the most opportune time to intervene to help promote long-term health behavior change. You've heard about teachable moments for behavior change. And this is a graphic that we borrowed from the smoking cessation literature. And it essentially posits that there's a queuing event for a teachable moment to exist. There's a queuing event. And here we're obviously talking about pregnancy. And this queuing event causes some emotional change. Emotion is enhanced. And of course, we know during pregnancy there's a greater prevalence of depressive symptoms. And there's also greater prevalence in a, a significant subset of feelings of elation and joy and and positive emotions. And the idea here is that those emotions can be kind of fueled and garnered and translated into motivation to adopt some health behavior changes. And I know that negative feelings and depressive symptoms aren't always thought of as a motivator. Like, how is that going to increase health behaviors? Um, But it actually can, as women try to strive to alleviate those symptoms, it can translate into positive behavior changes. So pregnancy also can increase perceived risks and positive outcomes associated with healthy eating and activity during pregnancy. So it's a time when a mom's eating and activity not only impact her, but also potentially her baby. And so that's thought as a potential motivator to increase behavior changes. And it's a time when women's self-concept is 
potentially radically changed as women become moms for the first time or they become moms of one or two kids for the first time or they become working moms, stay-at-home moms, all that redefinition that occurs. And the idea is that if you time an intervention there, as she's redefining herself, she may say, well, I'm going to be a healthy eater mom or an active mom. And and so all these things are thought to come together to enhance motivation, um, self-efficacy for behavior change that can lead to long-term success in, in weight controls, what we're focusing on here. So we did a study that looked at this a little bit. It was a fit-for-delivery study, and it looked at if you time an intervention to occur just during pregnancy, can that lead to long-term success and behavior change? And we recruited 200 normal weight, 200 overweight and obese pregnant women. We assigned them to a control group and our, our intervention group. And it was a low-intensity intervention like I said, during pregnancy alone, we targeted gestational weight gain according to the, the IOM guidelines. We talked about healthy eating. Uh, we gave a calorie goals, but we were really, the intervention was really focused on cutting out the junk food, sugar-sweetened beverages, fast food, cutting those things out. We... Um, Promoted, or promoted, targeted exercise 30 minutes most days of the week. We gave the women pedometers, and we talked about, about behavioral strategies, self-monitoring, taking out the junk food, cabinet cleanouts in the home, and motivation, and giving messages to the women about how their, their eating and activity impact their baby as well as her, her long-term health. And I say the intervention was low intensity because we only saw the women once, face-to-face, for a 30-minute meeting. Then we saw them, uh, we didn't see them, we spoke with them on the phone three times during pregnancy for 10 minutes on average. That's a low-intensity intervention. We also sent them um, to what we call challenge cards in the mail to really kind of prompt them to think about having a fast-food-free week, for example, and they could monitor that behavior on these challenge cards and send them back to our center. And we got about half of the women sending these back to us, and that was related to success, but I digress. Um, so it was a fairly low-intensity intervention. We also um, called women more frequently if they were gaining too much or not enough. But on average, the women received three phone calls, successfully you know, answered phone calls. We gave them these weight gain graphs as well. And it, again, it was based on the 1990 IOM guidelines at the time. And the women received these in the mail. And it was based on the weight that they, um, that their providers weighed them out, that their prenatal, regularly scheduled prenatal visits. So they received these in the mail a couple days after they were weighed with their um, usually OBGYN provider offices. And this is what we found. And in short, our, our low-intensity intervention helped reduce excessive weight gain in the normal weight women, but it had no significant effect in the overweight and obese women. And these are intent-to-treat analysis. And the other thing we found is that 55% of normal weight, almost 70% of the overweight or obese, they were above guidelines at the very first time we saw them. They're already above guidelines. And we saw them early. We saw them at 10, between 10 and 16 weeks gestation, so at 13 weeks gestation on average. And once, you know, overall, once they were above guidelines, very few got back in. And our intervention worked a little bit in the normal weight woman, and if they went above, some of them went back in. But overall, it was really hard to get them back in. 
And I'm going to digress again a little bit here and talk about these weight gain graphs because we gra- these are powerful tools. We've seen both in pregnancy and outside of preg- pregnancy that not just weighing, but the feedback involved in the weighing is a really powerful tool. And we graph the women's weight based on their pre-pregnancy weight. So, because that's the IOM guidelines are based on pre-pregnancy weight. So we see them for the first time, a woman's above guidelines, she sees that dot right above the blue. How is that going to make her feel? Not very good. It's kind of, and I know I talked about how ad, you know, negative emotions can be a, a motivator for weight, for success. This isn't the kind of negative emotion I was talking about. I mean, our intervention was supposed to help alleviate some maybe pregnancy-associated mood changes, not instigate helplessness. So uh, in our current study, what we're doing is when we meet the women for the first time, we start them at zero and we base their progress on rate of gain from that point on, which is about from overweight, obese, half pound a week recommended weight gain. So that's what we're basing recommendations on. And I think this is just a clinical, you know, idea, opinion, but it it seems like the women are a little bit more motivated at the beginning of our intervention. So our intervention stopped at delivery, but we followed them during the postpartum year, and this is the intent to treat analysis results for the sixth month. And in short, the intervention increased the proportion of women who reached their pre-pregnancy weight at six months postpartum. And we saw that effect in both the normal weight and the overweight and obese moms, which was kind of surprising because our intervention stopped. And why would the overweight and obese moms suddenly see a benefit? And maybe they were better able to adopt some of the behaviors that they learned during pregnancy during the postpartum period. So we can explore some of those reasons. We also just published the findings, the 12-month outcome findings, and the find that the effects are just diminished. Our intent, we didn't see an effect on intent-to-treat analysis. We saw an effect for completer analysis. So I think you see this, uh, is pregnancy a teachable moment? I think in our low-intensity intervention, we saw enduring effects through six months that kind of tapered through 12. So I think it's a teachable moment. But maybe our intervention wasn't intensive enough to really kind of capitalize on this time um, and see the benefits of intervening in pregnancy. So conclusions from this study, a low-intensity intervention can prevent excessive weight gain in normal weight women. It wasn't very effective at helping the women who were exceeding guidelines get back within the guidelines. This has been alluded to earlier, and that so this is a summary of not trials, but reviews of trials on pregnancy weight gain interventions, and it's not even an exhaustive summary of these. And uh, as was alluded, again alluded to earlier, the conclusions of these reviews were some are effective, uh, interventions are effective but inconsistent, effectiveness unclear, yes, effective, no, it's all over the place, as we've, we've heard before. And... Barbara and I thought that, gosh, there's not enough reviews in the literature. We've got to do our own. (laughs) And so we added and did another review. Uh, But what we wanted to look at is the components of pregnancy interventions and how they may relate to the, the variables we know are important for weight loss outside of pregnancy. And so this graphic summarizes this, and thank you, Barbara, I adapted it from one of your graphics. And what you see on the left are things that we know from lots of research outside of pregnancy and weight loss trials that 
just um, interventions that target body image, that try to increase body acceptance or provide education alone, are not very effective in promoting either short or long-term weight loss. Things that are effective if used in combination with um, a larger treatment package can be targeting specific foods, targeting TV viewing, targeting just physical activity or, or social support. Those things in combination can be helpful. Um, but what we know to be effective at really adding to the effects of a package, I should say, um, are number one, calorie goals. To using meal replacements or structured meal plans. I mean, there's lots of really impressive data showing the benefits of, of meal replacements and meal plans and promoting long-term successful weight control. Weight monitoring. Um, on a daily weight monitoring, in fact, is what we're recommending now. High levels of physical activity, behavioral strategies, and continued ongoing patient-provider contact. So those are the things that we know help outside of pregnancy. And these things can be implemented in a lot of different uh, modes, either physician, group, individual, internet-based modalities. If these components are in there, you tend to see uh, positive effects. And what we did is we put at the, the top, you can see, let me see if I can point here. We put at the top, we listed those effective components. And then going down, we list the randomized clinical trials. This is an exhaustive list, but it's pretty, pretty comprehensive. And um, what you can see are the trials that found positive effects on reducing gestational weight gain. They tended to have more of these components delivered as part of their intervention. And as fewer components were part of their treatment package, you see you saw mixed or, or no treatment effects. And so, again, the trials having calorie goals, very few of the effective trials had meal plans, and that hasn't been tested very much so far. Weight monitoring is something I want to touch a little bit more on. Um, th we classified it as weighing one at least once a month, but as I mentioned earlier in our weight loss trials now, we're recommending daily weighing. This is data from the Fit for Liberty trial where we looked at frequency of self-weighing during pregnancy and its relationship to, or, or actually this just shows um, frequency in our intervention versus standard care groups, and you can see that the intervention groups had an increase in self-weighing frequency. And I wanted to point out there was no correlation between frequency of self-weighing and changes in depressive symptoms or stress. This has been well-documented outside of pregnancy now. I mean, in the 80s, we used to be a little reticent to advise daily self-weighing in our overweight and obese patients. But um, over time, with the data, we realized that, no, it's actually beneficial. But it's not self-weighing alone. It's self-weighing in combination with feedback and a greater treatment package. And that's been shown empirically that just self-weighing alone isn't enough. It's got to be part of a package to really increase and kind of have a synergistic positive effect on, on weight outcomes. So I, I don't think we should hesitate on recommending frequent self-weighing in, in pregnancy. So do we know how to help women gain the recommended weight during pregnancy? I 
think that we have empirical support from randomized trials that really suggest that comprehensive programs that include calorie goals, weight monitoring, behavioral strategies, ongoing patient provider contact, and moderate physical activity. Most of the trials today have, have incorporated moderate physical activity. Um, that package, along with for overweight and obese women, the programs also that were effective also include diet, daily diet monitoring. I think there is enough empirical support to suggest that that package can can help uh, reduce excessive weight gain in pregnancy. But there's a lot of really exciting and emerging ongoing research in this area, and I just can barely wait for these findings to be released. Um, we are going to be looking at and learning about gestational weight gain goals and how, restric- how restricted they should be and what happens when you tell an overweight or an obese woman to gain no weight during pregnancy. And I think that that's going to be a really exciting field. Uh, calorie goals, what should they be? How much should they be? What's safe? In our current trial, we're using 18 calories per kg as the starting point, but I think we need to know, just as in the outside of pregnancy field, we had a lot of tweaking and um, studies going on to figure out how many calories we should recommend. I think we need to do the similar work in pregnancy. Diet composition, there's studies looking at the effects of probiotics and vitamin D supplementation, and there's going to be a lot coming out in that area. How much physical activity? Um, Internet-based mobile apps and the other effects on, on gestational weight gain, and also more research looking specifically at the effects of maternal interventions in pregnancy on long-term offspring, obesity, and other risk factors. We are doing a study, and I'll just kind of plug it here briefly, on the use of meal replacements in pregnancy, and it's called Healthy Beginnings. And this is part of a consortium, a larger Life Moms consortium of, of studies. And it's really, I'm really excited. We're looking at whether our intervention that includes these organic meal replacement products, it's not just a shake. We're also using meal replacement bars and other things. But we're seeing if that can help reduce excessive weight gain in overweight and obese women. And the idea was, and fit for delivery, we found the intervention didn't really work in um, the overweight and obese women. But we, we think that this intervention, by intensifying it and putting more structure on the diet, that we might see a beneficial effect. So stay tuned for that, the findings from this trial. So are we ready to translate this knowledge into action? And the efficacy trials to date, as I said, they have some conclusions. I think we have some conclusions that can be drawn about what works. But efficacy, as we know, is not effectiveness. And what works in our nice controlled research centers may not work in the public and regular conditions. And so, uh, but on the other hand, can we afford to wait, knowing the, the adverse effects of excessive gestational weight gain? There are some great programs out there that have already been launched just trying to help reduce excessive weight gain. I just listed some of them there. But my feeling is that just as comprehensive programs are required in these efficacy trials, I think comprehensive programs are going to be required in our effectiveness and dissemination trials. And how we go about disseminating that is a big question because comprehensive programs are, require resources and a, a team effort. I think we need to be really creative about how we uh, disseminate our our interventions. Maternal health care providers or the 
logical place to start because women are already in frequent contact with their their providers in pregnancy. But we can get more creative than that. I I just read a study that was recruiting moms and pregnant moms in elementary schools. And at first I thought, well, why would you recruit there? They already have their kids. But there's women who have one kid often, don't ask me why, go on to have another kid. (laughs) And so I think that's a creative avenue um, for recruitment. So I think we need to be open to that. In our Fit for Delivery trial, we asked women, where do they get advice about weight eating and physical activity during pregnancy? And the number one place was from a book. Um, And this was a, we had about 27% low income in this sample, and we saw differences in the expected directions based on income, but the number one place they received information was from a book. Number two was from the internet, and we don't know what they were searching or how they were searching on the, the internet, but Barbara and I were talking, and I think everybody has to mention Barbara in their talks, because it's just been a theme. <laughs> so we were talking about, um, there was an interesting article in the New York Times that asked women, uh, researched what women were actually looking at pregnant women, what they were looking searching on, on Google, and there were some cross-cultural differences, but the number one thing was weight, was weight-related. And so women are getting information from the internet, and we need to figure out what sites they go to what pops up first. Um, number three was from a physician. Uh, only 55% of women reported receiving information about weight, physical activity, or diet during pregnancy from their physician, which is quite low, which I'll get back to in a minute. Uh, magazine, female friends, you know, poor 7% ask their male friend for advice. <laughs> um, but the... Um, but even, you know, a female friend, a half got information from a female friend. And that might be an interesting dissemination trial there. Um, only, you know, a third got information from a nurse, um, some from the TV. If we also um, looked at receipt of information from an OBGYN based on a mom's weight status, and more normal weight than overweight moms reported receiving information from their, their OBGYN. And this finding has been reported elsewhere in other more epidemiologic studies. Naomi Stotland's reported on this. And it's not to point a finger at physicians by no means, because especially in overweight and obese pregnancies, they are, there's lots of potentially acute things that need to be addressed. They don't have time to talk about weight, diet, and physical activity um, when they're you know, changing um, blood pressure medications and lots of other things they're dealing with. But at the same time, when you look at um, the extent that women followed information, the number one person that they followed the information or they're most likely to follow the information from was a physician. And so I think we need to find ways to integrate the physician into the dissemination of our, our approaches. And Fit for Delivery, we had uh, the phone calls were 10-minute phone calls, and they, the women received three. And we saw some benefit to that intervention. Physicians and other providers see pregnant women an average of nine times during pregnancy. So if we could get nine, ten-minute doses of an intervention, I think we may be able to exert a change. So we need to see if that's feasible, practical, and effective. Also getting nurses, dietitians involved, those were also um, information that, advice that was more likely to be followed, at least reported to be followed by, by our patients. Um, next was a book, and then going on, they did not appear to follow the advice of a male friend, which may be beneficial. <laughs> 
So what should the future look like? I think that it would be nice to see some modified prenatal care approaches, perhaps, and maybe a reversal of the current current pattern of prenatal care visits. This is an idea that has been put out before. I don't know how realistic it is, but I still like the idea. Right now, women are seen less frequently at the beginning of pregnancy and more frequently at the end of pregnancy, and there's really good medical reasons for that. But I think in trying to modify excessive gestational weight gain, it would be nice to flip that and have more intensive at the beginning and less intensive later on. Again, I don't know how feasible that is. I think I like the idea of overweight and obese women being classified as a high-risk pregnancy and having access to greater level of care. Again, the feasibility of that from a financial perspective, I don't know. Um, I don't. There's a lot of emphasis right now in randomized trials testing interventions in overweight and obese women for good reason, but I don't want us to forget that excessive weight gain in normal weight women is also a risk factor for overweight and obesity um, later on in, sub, in, in their subsequent pregnancy. And we have some indication of what works in normal weight women, so I don't want them uh, and effective interventions to be forgotten for this population. I think we need more practitioner training in how to talk about weight And we have this outside of pregnancies, and um, a lot of medical schools now are incorporating lots of role plays, and how do you tell a patient that they're overweight or obese? And it's not easy, but through role plays, you can really get the language and get a comfort level of broaching the topic up, and I think that would be nice to have that training among prenatal care providers, um, and also training in methods, effective methods to prevent excessive weight gain. Of course, to do this, we need... Uh, some health insurance coverage, which again is a challenge. I think ultimately, as been has been mentioned before, we're going to have to shift at some level to preconception, interconception, or you might conceptualize as postpartum uh, intervention, so that women enter pregnancy at, at a healthier, at a healthier BMI, and could reduce some of the, the adverse effects of of obesity during pregnancy. Thank you. Thank you. We have time for a couple minutes for some questions. Does anyone have a burning question? There you go. Hi, Danny from UC Berkeley, formerly from UC Davis. Um, I had a question about the mill replacement, and Barbara kind of touched on this as she introduced um, the topic, but what, how do we assess sustainability of mill replacement? Not all women can get a mill replacement. Some might not be able to afford it. And then also, are we actually teaching women self-efficacy when it comes to actually being able to create helpful mills on their own that are you know, of, of proper diet quality? Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question about the male replacements. So I had similar beliefs actually getting into this. And, you know, can women, are we just teaching them an artificial temporary way to modify their weight? And then the meal replacement goes away and then they um, are going to regain all the weight back and they're not learning self-efficacy or control of their eating. I mean, it just makes intuitive sense. But then I looked at the data in the weight loss literature and there's some long-term studies now showing that overweight women lose weight and they maintain their weight loss long-term replacing one meal a day with a meal replacement shakeup through five years. And so, and I don't see it as artificial. I see it as a choice. And I see it as when women are successful in this choice, it does increase self-efficacy for this behavior and it can modify their weight in the long term. So I think the women, it's not obviating the need to teach control over regular table foods, but it does help facilitate success. And so I think we need to pay attention to those data seriously. And also there is... 
research that shows that has done some cost-effective analysis, and you actually get a small savings if you replace the foods that people would ordinarily buy with a meal replacement shake, depending on the product. And so, I think at a minimum, you're not um, spending more money if you use the meal replacement as a replacement and not as a supplement. But it's a great question, though. Hi, my name's Stacy. I work at UCSF offering childbirth prep classes and parenting, so I think it's a good place to disseminate some of the information and forms that you're offering on the um, moderate exercise and weight control. And I'm interested, can I get some of those forms? Well, <laughs> um, we have, I know Christine Olson has her weight gain graphs and her intervention materials publicly available online. I know there's some great materials that the IOM has disseminated also. I, because we found effects in normal weight and not the overweight and obese women, I just don't feel quite ready just to give our materials um, because we didn't see a you know, strong effect. Um, but I'm happy to talk with you and you know, I give them out, but I just don't have them on a, a public avail publicly available website at the moment. Uh, I'm Natalie. I'm a PhD student here in sociology at UCSF. Um, I had a question, sort of maybe follow up to the meal replacement. Uh, at the beginning, you mentioned so we know that dieting doesn't work. We don't want to encourage the dieting. Um, but then there was talk of meal replacements. There's talk of zero weight gain for obese women during pregnancy. And I'm curious how that meshes because if there's zero weight gain, isn't that really a weight loss for them? And how the like no dieting message in my view, conflicts with the, the messages of no weight gain during pregnancy or replacing meals or calorie counting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't think we know yet the effects of no weight gain during pregnancy and if that should be recommended or not. I think we will know that in the future. When I see the term dieting, I, I mean, in my mind, a diet is a comprehensive pack package. I mean, I'm not in the majority here, but I see it as a package of different tools trying to manage dietary intake. So, but I think in more popular terms, a diet sounds like a short-term fix and an extreme measure that is really just, you know, again, short-term. And so, but when I'm referring to a diet, I actually see it as a positive thing if it's comprehensive and if it can help, um, if it can be something that's sustainable. Of course, that's the, the difficult part is sustaining these changes. But if a diet, it's a dietary pattern that's not extreme that has positive effects, I see that as a good thing. Um, and it's, it's sort of by degree. I mean, you want some restraint. And, you know, in weight loss outside of pregnancy, when women say they're hungry, you're like, yes, you are going to be hungry when you reduce your calorie intake. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Extreme hunger is, is, not, a, is not a good thing. <laughs> but a little bit of hunger is sort of a cue that you're on the right track here. Um, and so it's really in moderation is, is my, and I don't want that to be uh, translated into we need to uh, espouse moderate weight loss goals because we now know that that's not an effective strategy, that moderate weight loss goals um, don't necessarily benefit outcomes. So it's really just a, a reasonable approach, I'll say, that's not such an extreme restriction. Did that answer your question? Sort of. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate the answer. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Hi, can you hear me? My name is Jessica Guterman, and I'm curious about um, 
the calorie goal, which like you recognize, we're not 100% sure what that goal should be yet, um, but that that's very important for an effective intervention. You also talked about with overweight and obese women that daily dietary monitoring is also key to be effective. Um, you know, when you pair that with trying to push like the, the healthy, high-quality whole foods model, which doesn't come with a nutrition label, and just take that into consideration with the context of, of what's, what are good strategies that you've heard about for daily monitoring in, in order to be effective. Does it have to be calorie counting? Is it okay to just weigh quantities? Is it okay to just write down? Like where, what, what's your interpretation of that? So any level of monitoring is helpful above zero. So if you just have people write down their foods, you get a little bit of weight loss. Um, if you have them write down the calories, you get a little bit, you actually get a little bit greater weight loss. And that's because they're more likely to meet the calorie goal. So I think just raising awareness is the, the really benefit of, of this monitoring tool, but also informs someone whether they're meeting their calorie goals or not. Now, if someone who's low literacy or not a numbers person, or it's hard to kind of measure these unknown foods. There's all kinds of class. You know, some people are so good at numbers that self-monitoring is annoying to them because they can never get exactly the right number of calories. So there's all kinds of these limitations. But I think some monitoring in whatever capacity seems to work. We also give women these structured meal plans with some variability so they know their breakfast is one of these four things or lunch is one of these three things. And, and that is a way that they don't have to constantly look up the calories. They just know this is their 300-calorie breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So putting some structure and tailor, we do tailoring at the individual level sometimes to what method of monitoring works best. But something is better. It doesn't have to be on a fancy book. We have patients come in with monitoring on their napkins or on their hands, and that counts. You know, any kind of, of level to increase awareness. I mean, these mobile apps are, are helpful for a significant portion of the population, too. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.